So this evening I'd like to speak about the river of change, the river of change. When I was younger, in my 20s, I was inspired by a book by Hermann Hesse called Siddhartha. I think many of you, or most of you, have been somehow connected to that book and to what was exposed in that book and how it hit your own heart. The part that hit my heart, that opened my heart to a different realm of understanding, was a very simple part, and it had to do about the river, just the river, the flowing onness of the river, listening deeply to the ever-changing teachings from the river, the endless flowing onness of life, the river of change, the river of our karma, understanding how that is, not just for ourselves, but for everyone. The Buddha said that there is no discoverable beginning about this river, this river of change. There is just this changing nature at every level of existence. I like to read from the Buddha's words. It's so inspiring to me. Sometimes I, when I write these talks or rewrite these talks, I get so waylaid just reading the words of the Buddha that I lose track of time. And I end up finishing up just two minutes before I walk to the hall. <laughs> so this is about the no beginning, the indiscoverable beginning of this changing nature. In Savati, there were bhikkhus, uh, those who are practicing around the Buddha. And he said to them, Buddha, uh, bhikkhus, this samsara, or this level of existence, is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Suppose, because a man would reduce this great earth to balls of clay, the the size of jujube kernels, and put them down, saying, this is my father, saying for each one, this is my father's father. The sequence of that man's fathers and grandfathers would not come to an end. Yet this great earth would be used up and exhausted. For what reason? Because, bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings, roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. For such a long time, bhikkhus, you have experienced suffering, anguish, disaster, and swelled the cemeteries. And this next one is about tears. He says, bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. What do you think, bhikkhus? Which is more, the stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered on through this long course? 
weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This or the water in the four great oceans, which is more? And the bhikkhus answered, as we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the stream of tears that we have shed as we have roamed, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. For a long time, bhikkhus, you've experienced the death of father, brother, sister, son, daughter, the loss of relatives, of wealth, the loss through illness, as you have experienced this weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable, separated from the agreeable. The stream of tears that you have shed is more than the water in the four great oceans. Bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is not easy, Bhikkhus, to find a being who in this long course has not previously been your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. For what reason? Because, bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to be be liberated from them. The fluctuations of just one life, just this life, I tried to broaden it to see something much bigger than paying attention to this small, limited space. But if we look at the fluctuations of just our life, birth, the stages through infancy, childhood, adulthood, aging, sickness and health, dying and death, you can see just in our own life the fluctuations, the inconstancy, the change, the impermanence. Who we are now is completely different from even 10 years ago, even the cells of our body, it is said. When in my 20s, the end of the river looked very far away, very far away. Now in my 60s, I've lived most of my life, and death of this life and the reflection on it is very poignant. It's something that comes to me and probably all of you more poignantly. There's much more urgency to live wisely, to consider even through the impermanence of life, to consider the preciousness of life, Keeping the truth of impermanence in the forefront of the mind and the heart helps us to live more wisely. I'd been studying the teachings of Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, a great Tibetan teacher. He talks a lot about this. And one of the most beautiful passages from one of uh, the stories of his life is this. As he says... Just as every single thing is always moving inexorably closer to its ultimate dissolution, so also your own life, like a burning butter lamp, will soon be consumed. It would be foolish to think that you can first finish all your work 
and then retire to spend the later stages of your life practicing the Dhamma? Can you be certain that you will live that long? Does death not strike the young as well as the old? No matter what you are doing, therefore, remember death and keep your mind focused on the Dharma. The Pali word for impermanence or this river of change that we live in is anicca, change, impermanence. The subtleties of understanding it include seeing it very experientially, seeing the arising, the becoming different, the never staying the sameness of it, the changing nature of every moment, the disappearance of it. So in a bigger way, we can see this as the flowing onness of all of life, like the beginningless, endless river. We see the change all around us, of course, in the seasons. Here we saw it uh, so clearly. There was still, and there still is snow on the ground. I mean, this amazes me, living in the tropics. When I arrived here, there was a snowstorm that evening, and I woke up, and it was just kind of this magical experience of looking out the bedroom windows and seeing no footprints in the snow and everything on the branches was so pristine and so white. And then slowly, slowly, you know, it began to, some, some of it began to freeze up and then with the rain, some of it began to be washed away. And then with the sun melting away, the spring sunlight being here, at least for the next few days, good news, till, till the weekend, they say, but we never know. And so we see snow on the ground and then the sunshine and the different birds you, that you hear um, and the, the feeling of warmth. It happens over and over again by itself. Do we get entranced by the beauty or sometimes the terror of it when it's uh, difficult weather patterns? Can we not see more deeply than that? Can we let the teaching of the changing nature of what's around us, of the seasons, not entrance us, not put us to sleep, not let that nature slide by unconsciously so we really are able to take it in consciously and be, uh, let it be a teaching to us? Just by chance, I found this poem called Another Spring. And here we are, just at the the crux of winter and springtime. That's the name of the poem by Kenneth Rexroth. The seasons revolve and the years change with no assistance or supervision. The moon, without taking thought, moves in its cycle, full, crescent, full. Deep in the night, a pine cone falls. Our campfire dies out in the empty mountains. But here we lie entranced by the starlit 
river, and moments that should each last forever. They slide unconsciously by us like water. We get entranced by the change instead of really letting ourselves take it in deeply, understand it at a deeper level. Nature is beautiful, yes, it is so. But can we learn about the impermanence of it? Can we love that? Can we come, come to be at ease with that and not just the beauty of it? All of us come to this practice to understand the nature of our life more deeply. We want answers, maybe in different ways, to understand our life and be connected in that way to the lives of others so that we have more compassion. To experience our life in a way that can liberate us, maybe, from ignorance, from delusion, from the ways that cause suffering. We want to understand the causes of suffering so that they can be let go of. This is why I came to practice Like most of you, there was a lot of suffering in my life when I was younger, in my 20s, and I wanted to find a way so that I could understand. And there was something about understanding deeply that I knew would bring some freedom in the mind. I had learned how to quiet the mind through the practice I grew up in, through my Christian practice of Catholicism. I learned how to quiet the mind by saying the rosary, actually, and novenas. But there was something more that needed to come from that. Not just calm, not just concentration, not just kind of blissing out in that uh, degree of easefulness, but using that easefulness, using that calm to see more deeply into life. I knew that looking at a calm pond and seeing my reflection in it was not enough and enjoying the calmness was not enough. But because there was some stillness maybe in the pond of the heart and the mind, maybe I could see more deeply into the pond, see the causes and conditions that brought suffering and uh, turn away from that, understand that and turn away from it, not act it out. And by looking into the still pond more deeply, maybe I could see the causes and conditions that brought happiness and peace and cultivate those through speech, through behavior, through the training of the the mental area, heart area of my life. So to understand the causes of suffering, the causes of happiness, to look deeply into the pond of the heart, of the mind. We learn, as you all know, that to hold on to anything, especially to um, things that don't last, which is everything, everything at the gross level, everything at the subtle level, to cling to what we cannot hold on to, what cannot last forever which is all of life, every level of life. This brings constant pain. So 
seeing that more and more deeply in my practice, living with that on a daily basis, opening to that at deeper and deeper levels of that still pool of the mind and the heart and that sometimes not so still pool, learning how to navigate the waters. We learn that to try to control what is constantly changing cannot bring happiness. I've mentioned to you that I have four grown children and now five grandchildren aging in range from four to 18. And I learned this quite a lot from them, you know, trying to control how it goes in their life. And someone reminded me today of a story I told about my granddaughter when she was younger in her early years, probably four to six or seven. And um, I was really concerned about her because she comes from a broken household, broken family. And she was going to visit someone who was not so nice to her at one time. And um, I was really worried about her, of course, and my mind was kind of shaking and fluctuating with that kind of inner change. But then I realized that I can't really control the, the river of her life, the karma of her river. It's going in the direction that it goes. I learned that by noticing the river of my own life, of watching how the karmic unfoldment of my own life happens and happened. And so by that understanding of my own inner life, I could see I can influence and help to protect her and guide her. But ultimately, I have no control over this incessant change of how things are unfolding in her life, this constantly changing experience that she's going through. And she went through a lot, as I did, as we all have, and the influence that I had on her sometimes protected her and sometimes didn't. But she's still okay. She's still um, going through her teenage years. When I came, I was bearing with her running away from home for two days in the first part of my time here. And I had to look at that also as a constant change of her life. She's okay. She, She finally came home. So we keep looking for what is stable, that she's, all, she's going to be okay forever, that we're going to be okay forever. We keep looking for what's stable in an unchanging and unstable reality. This is how it is in the life that we're living. By opening to it over and over and over again, the uncontrollability, the instability, the vulnerability, the inconstancy, the undependability of life by just touching it as we do in every sitting hundreds of times, thousands of times, millions of times in a retreat. It somehow opens our minds to some deeper wisdom. We learn a greater ease with it, a graciousness with life in its changeability. 
The Buddha's teaching on this profound experiential understanding of what is called anicca is something that he pointed to as highly important in our lives. It's important to understand it in our lives so that we can open to the finality of this life as we know it in our death with greater ease, with the possibility of really becoming liberated then. It's said that at the moment of death, if we can really train the mind and the heart uh, during this time of our life, then at the moment of death there's a great possibility that profound liberation can take place. So it's something the Buddha pointed to as highly important. This practice that we're doing the practice of vipassana, which is supported by the practices of concentration, like the Brahma-viharas of metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. Like the various practices of concentration, of anapana, keeping the concentration on the nose or on, uh, on the belly, for example, over and over again, or on a kasina, on kind of a ball of light, or the many ways that the different 40 ways that the Buddha pointed out concentration, which is serving our vipassana practice. I I want to make sure that I'm including concentration practice because it does serve us in the long run. The practice of vipassana, which we come to, is aimed towards this experiential understanding. Understanding deeply vipassana, what it means. Vipassana means seeing or understanding deeply in various ways, in profound ways. It's not just this understanding of how the cycles of the moon go, which is beautiful, and how the seasons come and go, and how children, when they come into this life, they go through their stages, and we do too in our aging process. But it is about the various ways that are experienced deeply in the body, in the mind. It turns the attention inward so that we see on deeper levels the fluctuating nature nature of it all. The pixelated view, the view that sees it from a magnifying glass of mindfulness that lets it all come alive and really big like an electronic microscope is put on it. So this uh, vipassana, it sees things in various profound ways. And so what are the ways? The first way is the incessant, mind-boggling, arising, morphing, dissolving, moving, transient nature seen in the moment-to-moment experience of the body, of the mind, of the four foundations of mindfulness, basically. That's how the Buddha laid it out. This is anicca. It's pivotal because it brings about the fact of dukkha, the fact of really understanding the first noble truth of suffering that there's no ultimate or lasting satisfaction in any 
one experience or condition, in any grouping of conditions, in any person or society, in the world, in a thing. This is dukkha. There's no lasting satisfaction. So it doesn't mean to say that there's no happiness. There is happiness, but you can't hold on to it. That too is fleeting. This is what it means. It's unsatisfactory. It's, it's said in that way because there's nothing that can be clung to. There's nothing that we, as we call ourselves, can hold on to anything. It's said in the, uh, the Sudhimaga and in the Abhidhamma, the path of purification and the Buddhist psychology, that the characteristic of dukkha is the oppression by the incessant origination and dissolution of every moment. Oppression by the incessant origination and dissolution of every moment, of every aspect of life, really. So Anicca is pivotal also because what is ceaselessly transient and uncontrollable when conditions come together to form a moment of experience, an event that we call self, that we call Kamala or person or woman or mother or wife or friend or teacher, depending on the role. All many conditions come together to form what is called this self. But when each experience of this self is seen with direct, in kind of a direct moment-to-moment bare attention, every aspect of it is seen as coreless, as evanescent, as not solid at all, having no essence. This is anatta, the not-self characteristic. Atta is self. Anatta is the opposite of self. In the Majjhima the Buddha said to his son, Rahula, Rahula, develop meditation on the perception of impermanence. For when you develop uh, perception on impermanence, the conceit, I am, will be abandoned. The conceit, I am, will be abandoned. Why? Because in every aspect that we think of as our self, or as this person, or as Kamala, or any way we call this self, we, we investigate that. It comes naturally in practice, this investigation. And every aspect of it is seen as coreless, evanescent, because it's constantly arising and changing and dissolving. There's nothing really solid about any part of it. The Buddha gave this teaching many times in um, just one book of the Samyutta Nikaya. This is the book of the Kanda Samyutta. He gave this teaching 159 times just in that book of the Kanda Samyutta. 
of the Samyutta Nikaya. Going through what makes up this sense of self, many times he brought about the teaching of Anicca or Dukkha or Anatta, depending on the teaching. So what makes up this sense of self? You've all heard probably the talk on the five aggregates, this grouping of khandas, khandas kind of this, this heap, these heaps, this burden that we carry of five things, of this form, this physical form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, which you can reduce to intentions, consciousness. I think I mentioned perception already. So when all of these come together, they form what seems like a self. It forms a sense of self, we could say. Sense of self would be correct, but really not a self. And going through our practice, every one of these begins to be investigated quite naturally. Sometimes when the attention is brought to the body, is brought to sensations in the body, this is investigating this form. uh, these physical sensations. When physical sensations arise, they are known as hardness or softness, roughness or smoothness, sometimes heat or coolness. And with every one of those experiences, we can see that it's arising, changing, passing away. Sometimes when there is contact with the form in the body, Feeling arises, this feeling tone of being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Sometimes memories come up, which is part of perception, and those are known as just a passing experience, just thoughts. We're asked not to get into the content of them too much. Intentions come up. When we go more slowly, we see intentions that arise and pass away. And is a, it's the cause for effects to come, for the body to move or not to move, for the head to turn, to look at something. Sometimes there's the intention to think, and that is noticed. Sometimes there are intentions that are acted upon and those that are not acted upon. The mind is very, very fickle. That can be seen very clearly with intentions. Consciousness, too, is impermanent. When the mind is really still and really quiet, we see that even consciousness arises and passes away with whatever object is being known. It it arises with the object. It passes away with that object. Then another consciousness arises. Even that is not permanent. This is where a lot of wrong view can arise in this area of consciousness. So we must be careful. Even the causes and conditions for form to arise, for feeling to arise, for perception, volitional experiences, for consciousness to arise, even the causes and conditions for these are impermanent. 
the Buddha said, in all of these teachings, what is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is. This is not mine. This is, this I am not. This is not myself. When one sees this, thus, as it really is, with correct wisdom, one holds no more views concerning the past. One holds no more views concerning the future. One holds no more views concerning the present moment. One has no more obstinate grasping. The mind becomes dispassionate towards form, towards feeling, towards perception, towards volitional formations, towards consciousness, and it is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. The Buddha repeated this many times because it is one of the most important teachings of all the teachings of the Buddha. One of our teachers, Upandita, called this deep understanding of Anicca the beginning point of truly realizing the Four Noble Truths. Because once we open to Anicca, the understanding of of dukkha, of suffering, really comes in close. We really understand that we can't hold on to anything. This is what causes suffering, clinging, holding on to anything at all, to formations, to perceptions, to feelings, to intentions, to consciousness, to anything that we call a self. When we understand this, he would say in different ways, it would bring us to a genuine place of refuge because we start living in alignment with that truth instead of resisting it or wanting it to be otherwise, which is really painful. And around this, a lot of wrong view arises. A lot of ignorance is, is more layers of ignorance are formed around this when we're resisting or wanting it to be otherwise. When we would go to interviews with our teachers, both with Manindra and Upandita, who I studied with, practiced with, and continue to with Upandita, Manindra has passed away already, there would be questions about mindfulness of the experience of when uh, an object or experience arises, like the in-breath, or any other object like joy, or uh, sadness, or sensation in the body, or a feeling tone, we would be asked, or just in the instructions, be told to express right off the bat, how were we able to notice the arising of it? Was it noticed? What about the changing of it? What happened when it changed? If you didn't report that, um, in some interviews, not in all, but if you didn't report it, the teacher would ask, did it change? How did it change? I mean, at first I thought, well, that's kind of silly. He's asking me, did it change? But then I realized that the teacher wanted over and over for me to understand, to see it, 
to realize it over and over again, noticing its changing nature. And then how did it dissolve? There are moments in practice in um, the kind of the higher stages of practice or the kind of more the deeper stages of practice when one starts to see the dissolving nature of a moment. Not because we're overlaying an idea of that it's dissolving, but that it's actually seen. That moment is actually experienced, the dissolving moment. So this kind of way of practicing, even though it seems so simplistic over all the years, it really gave the chance for the heart and the mind to soak in it over and over again, to soak in these three universal characteristics of anicca, of dukkha, of anatta. Sometimes the mind would realize anicca more. Sometimes it would lean into dukkha, can't cling to anything. It's so unsatisfactory. Sometimes it would more soak in anatta, how everything is so evanescent. There's no core to any part of life. And so this was very skillful, knowing the bare experience beneath conceptual knowledge. So whatever the mind and body was going through, just to bring a closeness to what was going on and not to understand it in a conceptual way, but to understand it in an experiential, intimate way. Not getting involved in the thoughts about them, even Dhamma thoughts about them. There's a point in practice where um, we go along and we have these Dhamma thoughts about insights. Oh, I understand. I saw this moment of Anicca and then I understood something in my life. Or I can understand something about the, the distant past or about how the life will be in the future. Sometimes we open to some kind of understanding like that or understanding of how I realized in this moment that in that moment there was truly no solidity to the body, to the mind. Everything was just like a cloud. And so we may get an insight like that and just kind of talk about it to ourselves a little bit. And of course we might tell the teacher or our Dharma friend about it a little bit. But there are times when I would say this to the teacher and there are really important times in practice when not to say, when just to express the dissolving nature of it and not to express the content of it, even though it's a kind of a high Dhamma content. I remember saying this to the teacher one time and the teacher said very clearly, stopped me in my tracks and said, stop in English. He said, stop. And then I heard the translation. If you continue in this way, you will go backwards. You know, just kind of getting on the conceptual level of it and being on that level and not just continuing on with the moment-to-moment bare attention. So not getting caught in the internal dialogue Sometimes I have to say it happens and it's necessary and it's a part of our practice where we need to go through that and no worries 
don't, don't think that you're not practicing right. There's a time in our practice that we need to go through that understanding on the conceptual level. It actually deepens our practice. It gives us more faith. It helps us to see it more clearly when we, when we need to dialogue that way. But sometimes the internal dialogue stops somehow, especially on the moment-to-moment view of things. This is how Carlos Castaneda expresses it. He was a student of Don Juan. He said, whenever the internal dialogue stops, the world collapses. Isn't it so? The world as we know it, the conceptual world. The world collapses, he says. The extraordinary facets of life, of ourselves, surface as though they had been kept heavily guarded by our words, heavily guarded by our words, by all the talk around it. So it's important to let it fall away when we feel the quietness there, just to let the words fall away, to really trust that, to listen to the flow of the river of change over and over again. So listening through the years of life, on the cushion, and then back into life just became more of a seamless flow for my own life, deepening that understanding and intensive practice, and then bringing that ability to be more easeful with the change, with the dramatic changes that go on in our practice, and then bringing that ability to be with the drama of our internal life, and then being with the drama of our external life. One of the ways that uh, one of my teachers helped me to do this um, was when this brings me into my daily life and it kind of shows me how life on the cushion helped me and then also the teacher helps me by reminding me. So when I was uh, at home once and... um, my youngest child was going into her teens and she just had a big argument with her father and they were shouting really loudly and Manindra was there. He was sitting at the table beside me. We were having lunch and I wanted everything to be perfect for him. I just wanted to control everything, you know. I told the children and everybody in the household, please, let's help him. Um, recover. He had just had a surgery. But they were shouting and they wouldn't stop, you know. And I was cringing in my seat and I wanted to shout back, you know, and I wanted to yell stop and I wanted to cover my head and do all kinds of things. I could just see the mind moving around and um, (laughs) there was turmoil inwardly, turmoil outwardly. And Manindra he was looking, kind of looking around, wondering, and I was watching him look around, seeing what was going on. And my thoughts were like, this never happens in an Indian family, you know. <laughs> That's probably not really true. And uh, I thought, I don't think Manindra has seen this before. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I wanted everything to be perfect. And then my daughter runs around the table and down the hall and her father chasing after her, you know. (laughs) And she goes to her door, and 
her father says, she slams the door and her father says, open this door. She says, no, with all her might. Open this door. No, open this door or I'll kick the door in. He, he, she says, go ahead. <laughs> and it happened. You know? So in the meantime, Manindra's looking at me and then I'm sitting, I'm sitting here, Manindra's sitting here facing that way. And he puts his right hand on my left forearm and very calmly, just it's a kind of a transmission more than the words, he says, surrender to the law, meaning this is the way it is, accept it. You can't control it. This is the way it is. I remember those words a lot in my practice, in sitting, in being in life. Surrender to the law. This is how it is. And we start deepening into that. It, we start relaxing into the change and not being able to control the karmic unfolding of someone else's river. You know, of course, we do everything we can to help. But of course, we're not going to control it. And so opening to the teachings, whether it's the weather patterns outwardly of, our, of nature or the weather patterns of the nature of our children's and grandchildren's and relatives' life, the weather patterns within, opening to the flux of this inner and outer change. This is what we're doing. Sensations in the body constantly changing from heat to coldness, hardness to softness. Memories come and go, bringing in pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. When the mind contacts a memory, these uh, feelings come, these Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Quite naturally, it's the law. Surrender to the, this is the law of nature, the inner weather patterns. Just yesterday, or the day before, I was sitting over there in my chair, and sunlight came, and it hit the back of my um, uh, back and my neck and the side of my face. And then there was a warmth. Previous to that, there was a coolness. And seeing it changed to warmth. And then the contact with that warmth brought in a pleasant feeling. So there was this pleasant feeling. And seeing that flux and change, even in its intensity, And then just noticing that with more sunlight, it became a little too warm because of what I was wearing. And then unpleasant came, you know, from pleasant to unpleasant. And that was probably within a minute. And and even within that minute, within a micro moment of seeing the unpleasant nature of that moment, flux and change. And then the intention to move came up. Noticing that, that volitional intention to move. But then the intention, no, don't move. See how fickle the mind is. It wants to move, and then don't move. And then the thought, I wish it would go away. You know, this unpleasant feeling. Then seeing that thought. And then the thought, oh, there's equanimity. It's okay. And then another thought, it's not okay. I got to get up, you know. (laughs) 
but it's just changing. It's just changing all the time. And just being with that change, it's teaching us, are we learning? Are we getting the gift? Are we receiving the gift from all that? Letting the experience soak in. I remember times going to um, the, the teacher, Manindra, and he would say, as I said, it's the law, the naturalness of the arising, the changing, and the passing away of everything. When you accept it really deeply, there's this deep kind of easeful acceptance of it. There is what is called adimoka, a very kind of easeful confidence with the nature of how life is, with how it's going. There's this extraordinary understanding in, on that deep level. Sometimes I've known from my own way of going through practice, going to the teacher, say Upandita, when I've gone to Burma or other places to practice with him. And he would see this going on, this arising of a lot of dukkha, the changing nature of that dukkha, and seeing the mind open to anicca, seeing anatta over and over again. He would not say much. He would just say, just carry on, just carry on. And I would, uh, he, sometimes he would put out a little crumb of, you know, um, you're on the right track. You know, that was good. That was a nice... <laughs> you notice I say that to some of you sometimes. And also, you know, or to say um, your practice is headed in, in the right direction. But I would notice that he would allow me to soak there for a while. Sometimes for a whole retreat. Not just for a day, but sometimes it's... It's the thing of the whole retreat. It's that event or those changing events that had to be uh, attended to. And that was how it is. And so I've learned over these years of um, practice with him to just not try to have any kind of reaching for anything. That sometimes we need to soak in something for a long, long time depending on karmic conditions. Of course, we can help that by doing our practice of the paramis and all of generosity and uh, metta and equanimity and all of that. We can move it along. But basically, sometimes we just have to surrender to the law just to be with this moment and the next moment. He would say, Manindra would say, let go of any expectations in practice that it should be this way or that way or that it should unfold, um, you know, right away. That's, I said earlier in the retreat, uh, in the month here, he would say, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. You can't, you can't hurry it up. You can water it. You can uh, expose it to the sunlight of mindfulness and to the watering with all the um, beautiful qualities of the mind that we do that with, giving it good soil, making fertilizer out of all the defilements, you know, and adding that to the soil. So we can help it along, but actually everything is going on by itself. 
All we have to do is that. Like I said this morning, he said, I'm not asking you to cut the jungle. You know, he comes from a jungly place, I guess, in India. So he said, I'm just, he would say, I'm just asking you to be mindful, that's all. And I would say, I know, but it's very hard. This was in the past. I don't complain as much anymore. (laughs) I do sometimes, but not so much. So he would say, let go, let go, let go. Let go of the past. Let go of thoughts of the future. Let go of the present. I remember talking to him about the past. And one time I was riding in a car with him. I was driving and we were going someplace. And he was so, he had, he had had it with my talking about the past. And he just gave me a great big lecture. I was driving the car and just like, oh, I might pull, I have to pull over to the side. You know, I'm getting so nervous. And he would say, let go of the past. The past is dead and gone. By thinking about the past, you bring it again into the future, into the present. It stirs your mind. It affects the future. Let go of the past. The past is dead and gone. The future has not yet come. The present moment will determine the future. How you experience the present and how you respond to the present, that will determine your future. I have those words memorized. I heard him say it so many times to me. So this is how the Buddha said it. Let there be nothing behind you Leave the future to one side and grasp not what remains in the middle. The present moment. So we have to stop looking for solid ground. Get used to how it is. It can be a feeling of great vulnerability because it feels that, you know, we're not really landing anywhere. It's like jumping out of a a plane, thinking that we've got all these parachutes. We pull one parachute, and it doesn't work. And we keep falling and falling and falling. And then we have a, a one spare, and we pull that parachute, and it doesn't open. It doesn't work. But we keep falling and falling and falling, and falling and falling and falling, and falling and falling and falling. And we realize that there's no ground. You know, it's just this constant change that we're opening to, this constant sense of vulnerability. Can we open to that? Can, we, can the mind come more at ease with that? That's what our practice is asking us. The degree of happiness or pain we experience is directly related to how well or not so well we respond to that, how we accept the transitions the outward transitions of life, the inward transitions of life. So what gets in the way of understanding anicca and these three characteristics led by anicca? I want to talk about that a little bit because it's so important. The first thing that gets in the way is ignorance itself. Ignorance is avijja. That's what it's called in Pali, avijja. Ignorance is ignoring the fact of suffering, of change, of the suffering of change. 
just a very simple example. When we're parted from those we love through situations or death in life, but we're parted, but we deny that it hurts. This is ignoring or being in denial of that, what's going on, that suffering from that change. Ignorance, ignoring, this is avijja, not seeing. There are two ways, the Buddha would say, that we get lost. It's either not seeing or seeing but seeing wrongly. This is the second way, seeing but seeing wrongly. Whereas avijja is ignorance, moha is delusion. Moha is seeing but seeing wrongly. For example, a form is being seen on the path and we think it's a snake, but it's actually a stick. This is seeing and seeing it wrongly. This is through the magician called Moha. It turns everything inside out, upside down. It turns it into something else, like seeing an illusion in the desert. A classic yogi example is having a painful sitting and then having the thought, which is, which is really coming from delusion, having the thought, this will last forever. Did you ever think that when you had a pain? This will be how it is the rest of the day. This is affected by delusion. Not really understanding the anicca-ness of that moment. In a way, that anicca-ness is good news, if we could really open to it. Some people do. Or the opposite. We have a great sitting in the morning, and moha influences the mind to think, oh, my day is going to be good. This is a good sign. Yeah? So we come to the next sitting, or we, we get to the walking, and we don't want to lose anything, and we're just walking so stiffly so that we don't lose anything that we had put together, and we get to the walking place, and, you know, we lose it. One of the, my friend Yogi says, there's nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of the day. <laughs> Isn't that so? It influences the mind. We, Moha sees what is impermanent. It sees that as permanent. It starts to see everything as permanent. This is the magician called Moha. It influences the mind to see what is not self as self. It, it, it doesn't see through the changing nature of these five aggregates of what is called self. It just sees the solidity of it. It sees what is ultimately changing and unsatisfactory. It sees that as though it would bring some kind of lasting happiness. As this person, this thing, this will finally bring me deep happiness, lasting happiness. So it doesn't see things very clearly. Someone asked uh, the Buddha if anything was stable permanent, not subject to change. And the Buddha said, there is no form that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change. 
that will remain the same just like eternity itself. There is no feeling, perception, volitional formation, consciousness that is permanent. And he goes on and on about that. There is nothing that is like that. Finally, there's the flowing onness of the river, and it teaches us not to resist this truth. So we come to be at more ease, and we um, understand that it's really important to use our life meaningfully. We use our life to develop skillful speech, skillful behavior. We train the mind to lean towards the wholesome, turn away from what's unwholesome, not resist it, but just not act it out or not continue thinking in that way. In time, the mind and the heart become purified of the the defilements. The mind, bit by bit, uh, turns to the Dhamma, turns to liberation. And we use our life to serve that in humanity, within humanity, to serve humanity. It's how we begin to live. And it's also how we look towards how we will die. Not just how we will live, but can we die a death that can bring all of our life to that point and easily let go. Let go of all things that we cling to. So I'd like to end by reading this writing by Sogyal Rinpoche. And then I love this story of a nun, which I'll read right afterwards, because it talks, it talks about how it's so possible for anyone to be liberated through opening to impermanence. This is from Sogyal Rinpoche. There would be no chance at all of getting to know death if it happened only once. But fortunately, life is nothing but a continuing dance of birth and death, a dance of change. Every time I hear the rush of a mountain stream or waves crashing crashing on the shore or my own heartbeat, I hear the sound of impermanence. These changes, these small deaths, are our living links with death. They are death's pulses, death's heartbeat, prompting us to let go of all things we cling to. And so this is a story of Mita Kali, a nun who became enlightened during the time of the Buddha. And it describes the precise moment of realization characterized by her insight into Anicca. She was a nun reputed to be very angry, difficult, and self-centered. When I read this, I thought, oh, we have a chance. (laughs) She heard how to practice through Satipatthana Sutta, and she changed, and eventually she became an arahant. This is her poem in the Tirigatha. Although I left home for no home, and wandered full of faith. I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. 
A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before the body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. The mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. Let's sit with that. Let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.